0: H. P. Lovecraft's, At the Mountains of Madness. Your reader is William Hart. Chapter 7 The full story, so far as deciphered, will shortly appear in an official bulletin of Miskatonic University. Here I shall sketch only the salient highlights in a formless, rambling way. Myth, or otherwise, the sculptures told of the coming of those star-headed things to the nascent, lifeless Earth out of cosmic space. Their coming, and the coming of many other alien entities, such as at certain times, embark upon spatial pioneering. They seemed able to traverse the interstellar ether on their vast, membranous wings, thus oddly confirming some curious hill folklore long ago told me by an antiquarian colleague. They had lived under the sea a good deal, building fantastic cities and fighting terrific battles with nameless adversaries by means of intricate devices employing unknown principles of energy. Evidently, their scientific and mechanical knowledge far surpassed man's today, though they made use of its more widespread and elaborate forms only when obliged to. Some of the sculptures suggested that they had passed through a stage of mechanized life on other planets but had receded upon finding its effects emotionally unsatisfying. Their preternatural toughness of organization and simplicity of natural wants made them peculiarly able to live on a high plane without the more specialized fruits of artificial manufacture, and even without garments except for occasional protection against the elements. It was under the sea, at first for food and later for other purposes, that they first created earth life using available substances according to long known methods. The more elaborate experiments came after the annihilation of various cosmic enemies. They had done the same thing on other planets, having manufactured not only necessary foods, but certain multicellular protoplasmic masses capable of molding their tissues into all sorts of temporary organs under hypnotic influence and thereby forming ideal slaves to perform the heavy work of the community. These viscous masses were without doubt what Abdul Alhazred whispered about as the Shoggoths in his frightful Necronomicon, though even that mad Arab had not hinted that any existed on earth except in the dreams of those who had chewed a certain alkaloidal herb. When the star-headed Old Ones on this planet had synthesized their simple food forms and bred a good supply of Shoggoths, they allowed other cell groups to develop into other forms of animal and vegetable life for sundry purposes, extirpating any whose presence became troublesome. With the aid of the shagoths, whose expansions could be made to lift prodigious weights, the small, low cities under the sea grew to vast and imposing labyrinths of stone not unlike those which later rose on land. Indeed, The highly adaptable old ones had lived much on land and other parts of the universe, and probably retained many traditions of land construction. As we studied the architecture of all these sculptured Paleogean cities, including that whose eon-dead corridors we were even then traversing, we were impressed by a curious coincidence which we have not yet tried to explain, even to ourselves. The tops of the buildings which in the actual city around us had of course been weathered into shapeless ruins ages ago, were clearly displayed in the bas-reliefs, and showed vast clusters of needle-like spires, delicate finials on certain cone and pyramid apexes, and tiers of thin, horizontal scalloped discs capping cylindrical shafts. This was exactly what we had seen in that monstrous and portentous mirage, cast by a dead city whence such skyline features have been absent for thousands and tens of thousands of years, which loomed on our ignorant eyes across the unfathomed mountains of madness as we first approached Poor Lake's ill-fated camp. Of the life of the Old Ones, both under the sea and after part of them migrated to land, volumes could be written. Those in shallow water had continued the fullest use of the eyes at the ends of their five main head tentacles, and had practiced the arts of sculpture and of writing in quite the usual way, the writing accomplished with a stylus on waterproof waxen surfaces. Those lowered down in the ocean depths, though they used a curious phosphorescent organism to furnish light, pieced out their vision with obscure special senses operating through the prismatic cilia on their heads senses which rendered all the old ones partly independent of light in emergencies. Their forms of sculpture and writing had changed curiously during the descent, embodying certain apparently chemical coating processes, probably to secure phosphorescence, which the bas-reliefs could not make clear to us. The beings moved in the sea partly by swimming, using the lateral crinoid arms, and partly by wriggling with the lower tier of tentacles containing the pseudo-feet, Occasionally they accomplished long swoops with the auxiliary use of two or more sets of their fan-like folding wings. On land they locally used the pseudo feet, but now and then flew to great heights or over long distances with their wings. The many slender tentacles into which the crinoid arms branched were infinitely delicate, flexible, strong, and accurate in muscular-nervous coordination ensuring the utmost skill and dexterity in all artistic and other manual operations. The toughness of the things was almost incredible. Even the terrific pressures of the deepest sea bottoms appeared powerless to harm them. Very few seemed to die at all except by violence, and their burial places were very limited. The fact that they covered their vertically inhumed dead with five-pointed inscribed mounds set up thoughts in Danforth and me which made a fresh pause and recuperation necessary after the sculptures revealed it. The beings multiplied by means of spores, like vegetable charidophytes as Lake had suspected, but owing to their prodigious toughness and longevity, and consequent lack of replacement needs, they did not encourage the large-scale development of new prothylae except when they had new regions to colonize. The young matured swiftly and received an education evidently beyond any standard we can imagine. The prevailing intellectual and aesthetic life was highly evolved, and produced a tenaciously enduring set of customs and institutions which I shall describe more fully in my coming monograph. These varied slightly according to sea or land residence, but had the same foundations and essentials. Though able, like vegetables. To derive nourishment from inorganic substances, they vastly preferred organic and especially animal food. They ate uncooked marine life under the sea, but cooked their viands on land. They hunted game and raised meat herds, slaughtering with sharp weapons whose odd marks on certain fossil bones our expedition had noted. They resisted all ordinary temperatures marvelously, and in their natural state could live in water down to freezing. When the great chill of the Pleistocene drew on, however, nearly a million years ago, the land-dwellers had to resort to special measures including artificial heating, until at last the deadly cold appears to have driven them back into the sea. For their prehistoric flights through cosmic space, legend said, they had absorbed certain chemicals and became almost independent of eating, breathing, or heat conditions, but by the time of the great cold they had lost track of the method. In any case, they could not have prolonged the artificial state indefinitely without harm. Being non paring and semi-vegetable in structure, the old ones had no biological basis for the family phase of mammal life, but seemed to organize large households on the principles of comfortable space utility and, as we deduce from the pictured occupations and diversions of co-dwellers, congenial mental association. In furnishing their homes, they kept everything in the center of the huge rooms leaving all the wall spaces free for decorative treatment. Lighting, in the case of the land inhabitants, was accomplished by a device probably electrochemical in nature. Both on land and underwater they used curious tables, chairs, and couches like cylindrical frames, for they rested and slept upright with folded down tentacles, and racks for the hinged sets of dotted surfaces forming their books. Government was evidently complex and probably socialistic. Though no certainties in this regard could be deduced from the sculptures we saw. There was extensive commerce, both local and between different cities, certain small, flat counters, five-pointed and inscribed, serving as money. Probably the smaller of the various greenish soapstones found by our expedition were pieces of such currency. Though the culture was mainly urban, some agriculture and much stock raising existed. Mining and a limited amount of manufacturing were also practiced. Travel was very frequent, but permanent migration seemed relatively rare except for the vast colonizing movements by which the race expanded. For personal locomotion no external aid was used, since in land, air, and water movement alike the old ones seemed to possess excessively vast capacities for speed. Loads, however, were drawn by beasts of burden. Shagoths under the sea, and a curious variety of primitive vertebrates in the later years of land existence. These vertebrates, as well as an infinity of other life forms, animal and vegetable, marine, terrestrial, and aerial, were the products of unguided evolution acting on life cells made by the old ones but escaping beyond their radius of attention. They had been suffered to develop unchecked because they had not come in conflict with the dominant beings, Bothersome forms, of course, were mechanically exterminated. It interested us to see in some of the very last and most decadent sculptures a shambling primitive mammal, used sometimes for food and sometimes as an amusing buffoon by the land dwellers, whose vaguely simian and human foreshadowings were unmistakable. In the building of land cities, the huge stone blocks of the high towers were generally lifted by vast-winged pterodactyls of a species heretofore unknown to paleontology. The persistence with which the old ones survived various geologic changes and convulsions of the Earth's crust was little short of miraculous. Though few or none of their first cities seemed to have remained beyond the Archaean Age, there was no interruption in their civilization or in the transmission of their records. Their original place of advent to the planet was the Antarctic Ocean and it is likely that they came not long after the matter forming the moon was wrenched from the neighboring South Pacific. According to one of the sculptured maps, the whole globe was then under water, with stone cities scattered farther and farther from the Antarctic as eons passed. Another map shows a vast bulk of dry land around the South Pole where it is evident that some of the beings made experimental settlements though their main centers were transferred to the nearest sea bottom. Later maps, which display this mass as cracking and drifting, and sending certain detached parts northward, uphold in a striking way the theories of continental drift lately advanced by Taylor, Wegener, and Jolly. With the upheaval of new land in the South Pacific, tremendous events began. Some of the marine cities were hopelessly shattered, Yet that was not the worst misfortune. Another race, a land race of beings shaped like octopi and probably corresponding to the fabulous pre-human spawn of Cthulhu, soon began filtering down from cosmic infinity and precipitated a monstrous war which for a time drove the Old Ones wholly back to the sea. A colossal blow in view of the increasing land settlements. Later peace was made. And the new lands were given to the Cthulhu spawn, whilst the old ones held the sea and the older lands. New land cities were founded, the greatest of them in the Antarctic, for this region of first arrival was sacred. From then on, as before, the Antarctic remained the center of the old one's civilization, and all the discoverable cities built there by the Cthulhu spawn were blotted out. Then suddenly the lands of the Pacific sank again taking with them the frightful stone city of Rilia and all the cosmic octopi, so that the old ones were again supreme on the planet except for one shadowy fear about which they did not like to speak. At a rather later age, their cities dotted all the land and water areas of the globe. Hence the recommendation in my coming monograph that some archaeologists make systematic borings with Peabody's type of apparatus in certain widely separated regions. The steady trend down the ages was from water to land, a movement encouraged by the rise of new land masses, though the ocean was never wholly deserted. Another cause of the landward movement was the new difficulty in breeding and managing the shagoths upon which successful sea life depended. With a march of time, as the sculptors sadly confessed, the art of creating new life from inorganic matter had been lost so that the Old Ones had to depend on the molding of forms already in existence. On land, the great reptiles proved highly tractable, but the shogoths of the sea, reproducing by fission and acquiring a dangerous degree of accidental intelligence, presented for a time a formidable problem. They had always been controlled through the hypnotic suggestion of the Old Ones, and had modeled their tough plasticity into various useful temporary limbs and organs, but now their self-modeling powers were sometimes exercised independently and in various imitative forms implanted by past suggestion. They had, it seems, developed a semi-stable brain whose separate and occasionally stubborn volition echoed the will of the Old Ones without always obeying it. Sculptured images of these Shoggoths filled Danforth and me with horror and loathing, They were normally shapeless entities composed of a viscous jelly which looked like an agglutination of bubbles, and each averaged about fifteen feet in diameter when a sphere. They had, however, a constantly shifting shape and volume, throwing out temporary developments or forming apparent organs of sight, hearing, and speech in imitation of their masters, either spontaneously or according to suggestion. They seem to have become peculiarly intractable toward the middle of the Permian Age, perhaps 150 million years ago, when a veritable war of resubjugation was waged upon them by the Marine Old Ones. Pictures of this war, and of the headless, slime-coated fashion in which the Shagoths typically left their slain victims, held a marvelously fearsome quality despite the intervening abyss of untold ages. The Old Ones had used curious weapons of molecular disturbance against the rebel entities, and in the end had achieved a complete victory. Thereafter, the sculpture showed a period in which Shoggoths were tamed and broken by armed Old Ones as the wild horses of the American West were tamed by cowboys. Though during the rebellion the Shoggoths had shown an ability to live out of water, this transition was not encouraged, since their usefulness on land would hardly have been commensurate with the trouble of their management. During the Jurassic Age, the Old Ones met fresh adversity in the form of a new invasion from outer space, this time by half-fungus, half-crustacean creatures from a planet identifiable as the remote and recently discovered Pluto, creatures undoubtedly the same as those figuring in certain whispered hill legends of the north, and remembered in the Himalayas as the Migo, or Abominable Snowmen. To fight these beings, the Old Ones attempted, for the first time since their terrene advent, to sally forth again into the planetary ether, but despite all traditional preparations found it no longer possible to leave the Earth's atmosphere. Whatever the old secret of interstellar travel had been, it was now definitely lost to the race. In the end the Migo drove the Old Ones out of all the northern lands, though they were powerless to disturb those in the sea. Little by little the slow retreat of the Elder Race to their original Antarctic habitat was beginning. It was curious to note from the pictured battles that both the Cthulhu spawn and the Migo seemed to have been composed of matter more widely different from that which we know than was the substance of the Old Ones. They were able to undergo transformations and reintegrations impossible for their adversaries, and seemed therefore to have originally come from even remoter gulfs of cosmic space. The Old Ones, but for their abnormal toughness and peculiar vital properties, were strictly material and must have had their absolute origin within the known space-time continuum, whereas the first sources of the other beings can only be guessed at with bated breath. All this, of course, assuming that the non-terrestrial linkages and the anomalies ascribed to the invading foes are not pure mythology. Conceivably, the Old Ones might have invented a cosmic framework to account for their occasional defeats, since historical interest and pride obviously formed their chief psychological element. It is significant that their annals failed to mention many advanced and potent races of beings whose mighty cultures and towering cities figure persistently in certain obscure legends. The changing state of the world through long geologic ages appeared with startling vividness in many of the sculptured maps and scenes. In certain cases existing science will require revision, while in other cases its bold deductions are magnificently confirmed. As I have said, the hypothesis of Taylor, Wegener, and Jolie that all the continents are fragments of an original Antarctic land mass which cracked from centrifugal force and drifted apart over a technically viscous lower surface, and hypothesis suggested by such things as the complementary outlines of Africa and South America, and the way the great mountain chains are rolled and shoved up, receives striking support from this uncanny source. Maps, evidently showing the carboniferous world of an hundred million or more years ago, displayed significant rifts and chasms destined later to separate Africa from the once continuous realms of Europe, then the Volusia of hellish primal legend, Asia, the Americas, and the Antarctic continent. Other charts, and most significantly one in connection with the founding 50 million years ago of the vast dead city around us, showed all the present continents well differentiated. And, in the latest discoverable specimen, dating perhaps from the Pliocene Age, the approximate world of today appeared quite clearly despite the linkage of Alaska with Siberia, of North America with Europe through Greenland, and of South America with the Antarctic continent through Graham Land. In the Carboniferous map the whole globe, ocean floor and rifted land mass alike, bore symbols of the Old One's vast stone cities but in the later charts the gradual recession toward the Antarctic became very plain. The final Pliocene specimen showed no land cities except on the Antarctic continent and the tip of South America, nor any ocean cities north of the fiftieth parallel of south latitude. Knowledge and interest in the northern world, save for a study of coastlines probably made during long exploration flights on those fan-like membranous wings, had evidently declined to zero among the old ones. Destruction of cities through the upthrust of mountains, the centrifugal rending of continents, the seismic convulsions of land or sea bottom, and other natural causes was a matter of common record, and it was curious to observe how fewer and fewer replacements were made as the ages wore on. The vast dead megalopolis that yawned around us seemed to be the last general center of the race, built early in the Cretaceous Age after a titanic earth-buckling had obliterated a still vaster predecessor not far distant. It appeared that this general region was the most sacred spot of all, where reputedly the first Old Ones had settled on a primal sea bottom. In the new city, many of whose features we could recognize in the sculptures, but which stretch fully an hundred miles along the mountain range in each direction beyond the farthest limits of our aerial survey, there were reputed to be preserved certain sacred stones forming part of the first sea-bottom city, which were thrust up to light after long epochs in the course of the general crumpling of strata. Thank you guys for listening to this episode of the Foggy Jack Live Podcast. Please follow us social medias at foggyjack13. Also, make sure you subscribe to YouTube and to our Patreon. Hope to see you all next time down in the pumpkin patch. Thank you, goodbye, and blessed be.